Hello and welcome to another edition of the Arena Craft Podcast, a show focused exclusively on Magic the Gathering Arena. My name is Arjuna. I'm one of your hosts. Joining us today, Kovac Blue, the one and best of one, the highly talented, the good looking, the making 40 look excellent. How are you doing today, my friend? Don't know what you're talking about. With that number that you threw out there, pretty sure that that's not, that can't be correct. Can't be true. Oh, I forgot. You're actually 69. I mean, I've had that rank occasionally this week, actually three times this week, which is kind of fun. I did enjoy that for sure. Yeah, it was a good time. Good time. So today we are going to be talking about week two of the Innistrad Midnight Hunt Meta game, and we have a lot of information for you. Lots of updates. We've already had some competitive play. Some stuff has happened. Some things have come up. And so that's what we're going to get into today. But first, we just want to discuss a few things. Well, first of all, Kovac Go Blue, how was your week? I had a really good week in the arena. I am still, it, it feels like the honeymoon phase is still rolling for the most part, especially in best of one with the new cards. Like, no specific list or strategy is getting. I would say a lion's share of play and meta in best of one, which we'll get to soon. And the ones that are, are still a lot of the carryover decks from 2022 standard. Still a lot of reluctance to craft in the queues for the most part. So since Innistrad is a very powerful set, and since that means the decks with the Innistrad cards in them are going to often be more powerful than the decks without, I've been winning a lot. I've been in the top 100 I think all week and just it it feels like every deck I put together is doing, you know, 65 to 70 percent win rate pretty reliably, which makes it hard to tell what's best. But it does make for having fun days of magic. Yeah, I've also been enjoying it as well and enjoying some fairly high win rates myself. It definitely does feel a format like at the moment anyway, it's not optimized quite. So you still feel like you can throw together a pile of powerful cards and have some kind of a game plan and and feel reasonably assured that you're going to get some wins. Yeah, and I've actually I've leaned into a couple of things which we'll we'll get into a little further. (laughs) (laughs) in on the podcast i'm looking forward to that i want to know what arjun has been playing in the arena indeed indeed but first let's talk about worlds because this is a tournament which is coming up and remind us what the dates are on that again so the magic world championship i've been calling it xxv11 or but i believe it's supposed to be 27 magic world championship xxvii is coming up in 13 days 16 hours 44 minutes and 20 seconds all right well we got it down to the second i'm i'm stoked about that there is a countdown clock on the front page of magic.gg okay sweet i'm not that good and first of all that is going to be then for those of you not in this exact moment which none of you will be this is all going to be aired later that's october 8th through 10th uh, it will be live on nice. twitch.tv slash magic. I'll also be running a show. I was supposed to be at San Diego Hukon that weekend. Canceled the trip. My wife and I thought it was best to cancel the trip this year. But uh, going to be doing a watch party, which I did the last time there was a world championship all the way back in, what was it, 2019? When Paulo Vitor Dama de Rosa right. took it all. Yep. And uh, yeah, that last one was really fun. Looking forward to doing this again. But that's coming up. For those interested, there are 16 competitors and you can, quote, find your champion or hashtag find your champion. If you pick from the 16 competitors and enter your email on the magic.gg site, you can receive prizes 
for example, if you pick the correct person, you'll get a championship pet trophy on Arena. You'll get a world championship sleeve on Arena. You'll get six rare cards, not wild cards. Six rare ICRs. Is that what they call them? Yeah. And okay. So that's nice. So duplicates, of course, which is going to be fun. For, for whales like you and I, <laughs> but the listener might be like, ooh, six rares. I'll, I'll take a little of that. Maybe maybe there'll be some Innistrad rares for that, you know, that you don't have to craft. There's prizes for everybody who enters. So if your champion, unquote, gets the person you pick gets ninth through 16th, like a big old tie for last place, you still get one rare card and the sleeve. And you get more rares if they get third through eighth. You get four rares if they get second. So it's a way to pick your horse and go for it. I'm going to add ask you what who you would pick or if you have anybody in mind that comes to mind i'll tell you straight up all of these amazing competitors only one of them had the wisdom foresight and deep thinking mind to discover that in the year 2021 the best way to build your brand was to be on a show with the one and only one and best of one okay, and that okay. was of course the world champion paulo vitor dama de rosa who did a video with me on youtube i picked him for the champion because he's clearly on another level of strategic thinking <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. Consulting with the best minds. Also just a very safe pick. Has already won a world championship and is commonly believed to be the best player playing Magic alive at the moment. So yeah, definitely solid pick. I'm just gonna have to go with Seth Manfield. I mean, come on, man. I just, I always bet on Seth. He yeah. just top eights everything, man. I gave an honorable mention to Seth because as the only other one of these 16 players that I've had a personal conversation with, he said that my nickname, the one in Best of One, was cool on his podcast. He got okay. honorable mention. All right. So it all comes back around. All right. So we got your first pick and your second pick represented on this podcast. Let's go. It has nothing like I'm clearly <laughs> picking them only for their skill and yes. talent at Magic the Gathering and nothing to do with their ability to make me feel like uh, I, I, I I'm any, you know, never mind. Just don't worry well, about it. Well, clearly the rest of the people in this lineup <laughs> are just scrubs who are going to fall into the mulcher, which is Paula Vitor, John Medrosa, and Seth Manfield. So yeah, I'm going to be eagerly tuning into that. I know you will be as well. You'll actually be hosting the dang thing on your channel. You know, I think that we were just discussing this before the show started, but this is definitely going to help to cement the meta game that you see on Arena. So that's another reason why I recommend that people watch or at least pay some kind of attention to it because like come Monday, oh boy, it's going to be all of these world championship decks just cruising around on the ladder. It's been odd and there's been like blackouts, like we weren't allowed to run standard tournaments last weekend for MTG Arena. Wizards like blocked it out. You couldn't use software like MTG Melee to do it or something like that. You basically had to go rogue like Jeff Hoogland did for the Hooglandia Open and fall, you know, on Wizards' bad side. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of weird, though, that it's been so long since we just didn't have competitive play to cement the meta. Yeah. What are we? We're This is like our second podcast since it dropped. We're really only about a week in. Normally, there's plenty of speculation at this point, and we'll speculate a little, and we'll go over maybe some untapped.gg data, but... It's going to be nice to have a world championship in this standard format, this new standard format, to show us who's right, who's wrong, what's big good, what's might not get there, and just what the pros really go with. Because I think right now it's still, I think it's pretty wide open. I Absolutely. think that there's a lot of contenders. I think that we have some idea of what's good, but... Don't think it, we're without ways to beat those things. No, indeed. I actually really enjoy it right now. Like I enjoy these kind of primordial formats that feel really uncemented because it just you can just throw together decks and try them out and actually pick up some wins sometimes. And I think that's really sweet. It also means that 
you know, jank.deck. Or the person who crafted a bunch of stuff, you know, thank you, by the way, for listening to my recommendation. The person who just crafts a bunch of speculative stuff at the beginning of the format can actually have some fun and pick up some wins before this finely tuned sledgehammer of a tier one deck comes along and just picks the meta apart. So, oh, yeah. I mean, whatever that tier one sledgehammer is, at least it's not rogues. No. I can't tell you how many times I crafted my new cards and got turn one rune crabbed and was like, well, I regret everything. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so far, there are a few in this format anyway. I've seen a few turn one rune crabs, right? There are like few cards that just give you that awful sinking feeling in the pit of your gut right from the beginning of the game. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's pretty sweet. Well, so why don't we dive into it here? And I think, you know, this podcast would be incomplete if we didn't discuss the Yuhuglandia Open. So as that's like one of the biggest data points that we have to go on. Yeah. So, I mean, it's the elephant in the room, man. <laughs> what? I don't know what you're talking about. And you've been doing a remarkable job of of taking it easy on me and, uh, and not rubbing it in my face. Maybe it's because you already did it on Twitter. But would you like to tell the people what deck... And featuring which card actually took the whole thing down. The Huglandia Open was won by Selesnia Ramp, I guess you could call it. And the deck featured Isika's Chariot, Ren and Seven. Four copies of Yasharn, which I thought was pretty cool technology. Pretty uh, And worked really well in the deck. And uh, on the top end, waiting there to just... Put them all directly into play for the low, low, low price of six mana with a flashback of 10 to do it again. Ah, The underrated, underappreciated Storm the Festival. (laughs) It just had to go and win a tournament in week one. Damn it. It had to. (laughs) Uh, Slightly controversial. Did you see the screenshot that was shared with us? Yes, I did. I don't know how to explain it all to the audio listeners, but in a nutshell, it it looked like he was attacking for actual lethal, like basically had a lethal attack on the stack and his time hit zero. I actually watched that happen and it was heartbreaking. If he had managed to pick up like two seconds at any point earlier in the match, it seemed pretty clear that he was going to win. He was actually mid-attack step with a lethal-looking attack on the board. Mm. So, uh, mm. yeah, absolutely controversial. So we could have actually been having this conversation right now about a Blood on the Snow deck that looks fairly similar to, uh, you know, the deck that you popularized and a lot of people were playing in the 2022 meta. Yeah, the black-white Blood on the Snow deck keeping the hopes for Skullport Merchant and Standard alive. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, which is, is a card I keep on seeing here and there, mm-hmm. but we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. I, the deck that won, mm-hmm. Marasa Root Grazer, right? Uh, Prosperous Innkeeper, a a very unusual build. I like that they had Skyclave Apparition to hit off Storm the Festival, so they had some kind of removal card. You highlighted, while hating on the card at the same time, you also highlighted Bind the Old Gods, Mm -hmm. Binding the Old Gods as a hit that makes a lot of sense because it ramps you there and is a removal spell. A lot of people have been experimenting with that since then. We've seen a lot of Golgari builds and Sultai builds, but this green-white ramp version, it seems really straightforward and kind of a blunt object. It's certainly efficient. It gets the job done. I've played with it a bit since then. In best of one, it's it can be slow. Mm-hmm. It can be just a little bit slow for that ultra aggro meta. But it, either if A, you're on the play with a decent start, or B, you're up against anything trying to mid-range you, like, you should win. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of want to watch that finals because I didn't watch it. Oh, really? I didn't see it live. Because okay. I'm curious how James was in that match. 
because it seems like he should be getting dunked on by the deck because that's been my experience. Every time somebody's like one of the every time somebody leads on a shambling ghast, I'm like, this this is gravy. This is easy mode. Yeah. And not to get too far into the weeds with Storm the Festival, but actually watching that deck and watching that match was actually one of the data points that made me kind of question that card again. Just because basically what James was able to do was able to draw enough cards using Skullport Merchant and Deadly Dispute and Blood on the Snow. He was an absolute freaking boss at top decking blood on the snow which was one of the things that i think kept him in that final but there was one game in that final where he was able to grind through six resolved copies of storm the festival just put your deck on the field it's fine this is yeah (laughs) and i just like so watching that i was like yeah maybe i was right about this storm the festival card i mean you know i mean admittedly that ozov deck is it loves to grind i mean it's one hell of a grindy deck but i mean i agree i feel like a card like Storm should just pretty reliably be able to go over the top of that. I think one of the cool pieces of tech which uh, James definitely relied on in that match was Hive of the Eye Tyrant, which is looking very, very relevant with cards like Memory, Deluge, and Storm the Festival, and you know any of these flashback cards really in the format. So that card is definitely, I think, shooting up the list in, in priority, and especially fitting so well with the black plan in this format, which I think is really grindy. You know, I think if you're playing black in this new standard format, it's possible with some kind of undiscovered, like kind of aggro-y Rakdos list or aggro-y like Demir Zombies list or something. But most likely it's looking like it's going to be a bit more of a controlling, a bit more of a plotting game plan in this format. And so if that's the case, if you're aiming to go along against some of these it decks or any of these green decks, then being able to just tag those cards out of the graveyard, I think is really important. I don't know how... Like both of these decks in week one, it's kind of interesting that the aggro decks couldn't take them, you know, especially Gruel with all the tools that it got that usually in week one, you don't see mid-range grindy decks doing well. It's usually after a format settles. These two came out of the gates, the Selesnya ramp and the black-white kind of control-y grindy Skullport Merchant deck, and they absolutely tore that tournament up and got to the finals. And I don't know how either of those is going to beat like multiple all run epiphanies in a row uh, as the deck that hit number one on yes. Mythic this week, the tweet that went viral there was all about casting all runs epiphany and copying it with the flashback spell that lets you double your spells again and again. And it's, it's kind of neat to see that we're already in the how do I go over top of the go over the top decks phase of the meta. It's kind of early for that, it feels like. Well, yeah, and it just brings us back to the Nexus days where, like, no one goes over the top of never taking another right. turn again, right? There's, there's basically no way out of that particular lock in a game of Magic as long as someone has sufficient threats to close it out. And, of course, that's one of the wonderful things about Oren's Epiphany. And I think that one of the things that you might forget about this deck is that not only do you take an extra turn if you copy the Epiphany, but you get two more birds, and it substantially speeds up the clock. And so, yeah, this deck, and we should definitely go into detail about this deck because it's starting to look like public enemy number one on the ladder. I've played against it repeatedly, and it is a hell of a deck yeah. to get through. Like, I've, I've had a really hard time fighting it. If you want to get into the ladder, I've got some fun 
data pulled up from untap.gg premium that we can talk <laughs> okay. about a little bit on the show. So it, it's kind of fun. Are you ready to transition into that? Or when do you want to tell me what you've been playing? Because I am curious. Yeah, let's get to that later okay. because it's actually, it's somewhat of a reflection of some of the things that I've digested from the stuff that we're about to discuss. So yeah, why don't we talk about some of the broad strokes and then we can get into the specifics that are kind of informed by that. All right. Cool. So we're going to get into the data right now. And what would you guess? Arjuna can't see this. I get to play... Yeah, going in blind, I get baby. to play uh, Alex Trebek here. I, I know the answer to these trivia questions or whoever that was on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Regis Filmin. So what would you guess is the most popular deck today at 11.3% of the best of three metagame? And a uh, quick aside... We'll get to best of one, maybe, but I'm going to use best of three because early in a format, the best of three metagame and the tournament results tend to eventually drive the best of one meta. And most of the best of one meta for the early part of the format is spam aggro to get gold. And it's usually older deck lists. So we're going to start in best of three. Yeah. So, and this is not just because we were talking about it, but I really did expect that is it lists would be the most played in best of three. Absolutely. Coming into this format. Ah, you'll be surprised then because the number one most popular deck is Selesnia Midrange. Okay, so it's that tournament winning deck, huh? Yep. That tournament winning deck is sitting at a 60.9% win rate. It was so close. <laughs> so close to being nice. It is uh, precisely the list from the tournament that is so far getting played with uh, 1,700 matches under its belt and appears to be performing pretty well on ladder as well. I mean, if it's uh, if it's topping the list, then it's clearly doing something. I mean, I'm sure that people have been anticipating it this past week and not going in blind to it. What do you think of Scoot Swarm in that deck, huh? Oh, boy. Huh? Yeah, this is... Okay, so I will say that I was actually playing in a Storm the Festival Mirror this past week, and it was a Golgari deck that I was playing against, but they had the Scoot Swarm in there, and it was the first time I had played against like a Storm Swarm deck. And it definitely impressed me. I mm -hmm. mean, it was definitely the most compelling that I've ever seen the Scoot Swarm look in a game of Standard. Obviously, the last time that people were really making a go of it in Standard, they were trying to put Gem Razor onto it and then make a bunch of copies, which, you know, was incredibly dominant for the like 15% of the time when you actually managed to go off with it. And it was just a total meme the rest of the time. I was going to say, you consider that was a real try? I, I don't even give them that credit. <laughs> well, I just, I mean, that's the, the last thing that anyone I remember was trying to do with Scoot Swarm, apart from just, you know, memeing around in the play queue. So uh, yeah, I mean, that gives you an indication of how good the card is, right? When that was kind of the best attempt. But yeah, I think that here, it's a definitely defensible choice. I think especially when paired with cards like Ren and Seven that are just have the ability to dunk a lot of lands onto the battlefield, and then with Marasa Root Grazer and stuff like that, I think you can actually assemble board states where you just go wide enough that you can just you know, kind of alpha your opponent. They just don't have enough blockers to deal with it, right? So yeah, I don't know whether it's going to ultimately end up being like just cute rather than actually good. But I will say that I think for week one, it's a pretty sweet piece of tech and I'm sure it's won plenty of games. I'll say that my time playing the deck, I found two great things about it. Thing number one, it makes your worst storm the festival still pretty impressive. Yep. Makes a whole bunch of bugs, even if you're just hitting lands. And number two, it makes that Ren Zero ability a lot cooler than you Pretty thought it nice. would be. 
Oh yeah, yeah, pretty nice. You can go from a very modest board state to a million insects pretty fast with Ren and Seven Zero. So I just wanted to highlight that. I mean, so there are plenty of answers to Scoot Swarm in the format. We have the Meat Hook Massacre in black, and we also have Syndaclasm in red. And those are both excellent answers. The the cool thing about that, though, is that Syndaclasm especially doesn't particularly line up that well against the rest of the deck. Mm -hmm. And so I think kind of forcing your opponent to consider bringing in a card like that, which is only going to answer like one of your threats... I think is pretty cool. The Meathook Massacre can kind of clean up other stuff like, yeah, your uh, apparitions and, you know, the root grazes and stuff like that. So that's a bit more, oh, you know, your, uh, the cats from a Seeker's Chariot, stuff like that, right? So that's a bit more of a versatile card. But I do kind of like just forcing your opponent to respect it. I think that's pretty cool. I'll also say with this deck, a sweeper will keep you alive for a turn. But when this deck is in the like late game, it just assembles an overwhelmingly lethal board every turn. Almost yeah. at ease. Like the learn cards go get mascot exhibition, which you can play. Every scoot swarm can be a million critters. And then they just play Storm the Festival again and they hit Ren and Chariot again. They have four Emiria's calls to just make flying angels whenever they darn well please, it seems. Let's do that because we haven't had this talk. We're gonna, let's talk about Isika's Chariot and Ren and Seven because mm. this has been the talk amongst the pros for this last yeah. week, including a, a tweet that went semi-MTG viral from MPL and professional, longtime professional magic player Andrew Cunio that said, this is the worst standard format of all time, and went on to mention <laughs> it's because of Asika's Chariot and implied Ren and uh. Seven. And I wanted, I wanted to know, how much of that have you played with, against, and do you have any strong feelings about just where those sit in the format? So definitely have identified that that is among the best things, if not the best thing to be doing with Storming Festival. I think that if you are going to play that card, you probably just want to max out on your four copies of each of these cards in your deck, because it does just feel so godlike to hit them off of it. So yeah, I mean, definitely that's like a package right there, right? Like four yeah. Storm, four Ren and Seven, four Seeker's Chariot. That's a good start to your Storm Festival deck, and you kind of go from there. I mean, that does seem a bit hyperbolic to me. I think that that is definitely, it's almost certainly going to become a core part of at least one tier one deck in the format. I think right now people are really kind of just messing around with basically everything they can basically like every two and three color combination to kind of see which is the best Storm the Festival deck. But, you know, as to whether it's like the worst standard format of all time, I, I don't know about any of that. I think that's nonsense, to be honest. I mean, let's talk about who we're talking about here. Andrew Cunio, you know, kind of person who, he's a control mage. He likes to play certain kind of slow, dirtly decks. So maybe he's getting got a little bit more than he would like to be getting by these decks. So this is definitely not Omnath, right? This is definitely not Oro. It's definitely not Oko. It doesn't even look to me like Teamer Adventure. Yeah. Teamer Adventure is the closest analog. Like, I think that it's definitely easy to compare the cards Storm the Festival and Escape to the Wild, right? Like, those those two cards definitely kind of fill in a similar niche. I think that that's, that's the thing that I'd be most worried about is, like, are we basically just going to see a return to this kind of, like 
unbeatable mid-range deck, which Teamer Adventure ended up being. But I don't know, man. I mean, like like a four drop that you can negate into a five drop that you can negate into a six drop that you can negate. Like, I just don't know quite how threatening that's going to end up being, right? And I think it shows very much from like the decks that are also present in the meta, the deck that hit number one mythic that we mentioned that is like, okay, you're going to storm the festival. I'll take all the rest of the turns in the game. <laughs> I, I don't... Yeah. I think that Asika's Chariot is amazing, and if you own four copies and you crafted four Ren and Sevens and you want to go out and win a lot of games, I think it will be able to do that. Mm-hmm. I, I think that people are afraid that the way that magic works now is you identify like this card that's better than everything else in the format, and then you Oko it. It's 69% of the meta. It's in a number of different decks, and that's just your format now is who's on the play with their Chariot. And I just don't think that's going to hold up. There's a lot of answers in blue in particular there's a null which was in caldheim so you can counter it for one mana Mm -hmm. for one mana not bad bad. (laughs) that's not bad disdainful stroke hits both sides of it yeah in mono white we're gonna get to mono white but i'll I'll give away that i've gone back to redain because storm the festival pretty solid ren and seven asika's Mm -hmm. chariot all get taxed by redain yeah not to mention cards like memory deluge Lauren's Epiphany. Yeah, I think Redain is perfectly acceptable right now. And in blue-white, I've been unlocking a card that I think everybody just completely forgot about, Devastating Mastery. Oh, yeah. Oh, that that doesn't care about your Chariot and your Cats and your Renin 7. Doesn't care about any of that. The deck is like made to actually loop, get back, and play Devastating Mastery as many times as it takes. (laughs) That's pretty sweet. Yeah, like there's a lot of things that you can do if you're willing to go bigger. I think that the frustration is going to be aggro mages trying to go under it because I have seen that aggro is not in a happy place so far. No, no. In fact, pretty much all of the decks that I've been playing on the ladder so far have been clowning white trash. And I'll tell you what, man, it feels good. It does feel good. good. I feel kind of bad for the players (laughs) a little. Not that much. Just yeah. a little. And I'm I'm getting messages. It, it is daily now. Like, when are you going to fix Mono White? <laughs> because yeah. they're very uh, frustrated that the deck, the Go Wide Code Spell Cleric version of the deck isn't good right now. Yeah. And for those wondering, that video should be up by the time that they watch this. I did Mono White today. I have a lot of thoughts about it. I put way too much time into it <laughs> trying yeah. to fix Mono White. So I just want to say that so in standard 2022, the mono white weenie deck was the fastest deck in the format, and it could pretty consistently go under just about any deck in the format. So I think it was a really solid bet. I just feel like that's not true anymore. Like these are Seekers, Chariot, Ren, and Seven decks. Like if you get any kind of a ramp start, or if you really get off to any kind of a reasonable start, by turn four or five, you're just like clogging up the board with two twos, which is closely followed by, you know, making like two to three to four like seven seven reach blockers and at some point in the game mono white there's just no way they will ever keep up right and so i think just like if you compare this average draw to this average draw like mono white just doesn't come out that well and then of course other decks you know any black deck being able to play meat hook massacre which really is just an absolute massacre against that deck you're like wipe your board gain six life go (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I'm going to keep gaining life every turn for the rest of the game as I keep killing your stuff. And I'm going yeah. to slowly kill you by just chump blocking with eye twitches and shambling guests. Yeah, it's, oh, Meat Hook is nice. 
It's nice. And then the ability to pick it up with uh, either your divide by zero, or even if you're having some fun, you can do your cyclone summoner, which is a thing I've messed around with. And I don't know how good it is, but it's definitely fun. We're going to we're gonna circle into what you've messed around with. Do you want to continue the meta tour? Because we only covered one deck, but I think there were a lot of broad stokes to hit because it brings yep. up a lot of talking points. So what do you think is number two? Is it? 10% Come of the meta. Come on, it's got to be is it, right? It is, is it? It's listed as is it dragons? The most popular mm. version out there. So there's 7,400 matches played with Is It Dragon so far. And the most played list only has 370 matches. So we're talking about a wide variation wow. in the deck list. Very wide. Which makes sense because there's just very playable cards at every point on the curve. And there's just kind of multiple ways to do just about everything. So I think that that's really sweet. And I think that... If you're someone who has played Is It in the past and enjoyed it, this is a really great time to get in on it because, I mean, A of all, all of the cards in the list seem good. You know, like, I don't think that you're going to get burned for investing in burning down the house, right? You're not going to, like, you're not going to look at the end of the format and be like, damn, I wish I hadn't spent my wild cards on that memory deluge. And then a lot of the other cards are, like, common and uncommon. There's just no reason to be worried about crafting them. So, yeah, I think that it's really, like, pretty safe to just buy into the archetype and just kind of mess around and see what feels good to you where's the b of all i wait i guess it's coming i guess okay coming. okay okay we'll get to the b of all <laughs> we'll i'm sorry the b of all i'm on the edge of my seat okay <laughs> i i love the b of all okay anyway <laughs> win rate for is it dragons 55.6 percent about four percent lower than wow. selesnia midrange it's actually kind substantially of. lower yeah yeah and the most played version is a version that has four copies of Smoldering Egg in it. And I'm curious what you think of that card, but first let me tell you, 53.5% win rate for the most played version. It's interesting. Yeah. Smoldering Egg is a card which you had put in our set review show, and I ended up glossing over it just because I wanted to try to keep that show a bit shorter. But I think that you were definitely on point for kind of singling it out as a card with potential. I've definitely lost to this card before. So it's hard, though, to judge exactly how good it is, because I think one of the strengths of the is it list is that like early in the game, your opponent's removal tends to be turned off. And at the point at which it's turned on, you're usually doing pretty powerful things like Goldspan Dragon with Counterspell backup, or you've got an Allerin's Epiphany queued up or something. So you just get to a point in the game where your opponent's removal can either get countered or it just doesn't actually matter that much. And I think that like dropping the egg on turn two and then just kind of opening yourself up to get it killed immediately, it's not the worst thing. I mean, I guess it prevents your opponent from playing a threat perhaps, or maybe it slows them down in some vector or another. But that's kind of the weakest thing about the card, because obviously once you start memory deluging and Aaron's epiphanying and whatever, the card's just bonkers. I mean, you end up with this 4-4 hasty flyer that's doming your opponent for two every time you cast a spell. If you have multiple of them in play, you essentially win the game on the spot when they flip. So uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, have you played with the card? I haven't. Oh, I haven't played it once yet. And it's one of those things where when I started building Is It and going down the Is It rabbit hole, I ended up on a creatureless control deck focused on Epiphany and Galvanic Iteration, I believe it's called, combo. Mm -hmm. And once I was on that rabbit hole, I stayed on it pretty much the whole time I played Is It, and I haven't played any other blue-red 
decks and I've kept working on that. And this was before the tweet went out that the number one ranked mythic deck was a all runs epiphany combo deck. And I think I was kind of on the road there. But yeah, I I, I looked at it as well, I'm going to burn down the house and I don't want to burn down my own smoldering egg. So yeah. I really haven't played with the card. I will say from playing against it, it has not flipped on me yet. Okay. I have not lost to it. I have not even allowed it to get flipped. I've either killed them before it flipped or killed the egg. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely, it's one of those things where it's fairly easy to deal with, but it's also fairly threatening, so you kind of have to. So yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see where it ends up. I kind of agree with your implication that it's it maybe not the strongest thing to be doing in is it right now but i definitely think it's a card to respect and it's also potentially a card that could come in out of the sideboard in certain spots so overall i think it's pretty sweet i kind of wonder if the ren chariot thing just keeps being the thing are four four dragons good you know yeah have you, have you had that spot yet where here's my gold span i can run it into this tree folk so in theory it should be the case but i don't know if it's just me man but like these is it lists always have it what, whatever mm-hmm. whatever they need mm-hmm. they always have it and yeah. i think so one of the cards which is really embarrassing ren and seven right now is the unsummon of the format and it's what's that card called fading it's- hope fading hope which it really is how you feel when your opponent starts to play these against you so you know you go to the work of whatever get finally forcing your ren and seven through that counter magic or perhaps you finally manage to get one off of your storm the festival at some point in the mid game and then your opponent just freaking bounces your tree folk scries and just deals with your ren and seven the next turn so i think that's a card that's been really embarrassing ren and seven and uh, just the raw mana efficiency of that card is pretty frustrating. I would agree with that. I, I think that is it has the tools. And especially if there isn't a lot of aggro to go wide and punish is it for not playing proper sweepers, which yeah. oftentimes in best of three main decks they have no sweepers, then boom, you're just gonna you're just kind of gonna farm whatever you're up against by countering the key thing, bouncing the key thing, and sending in the dragon and taking all the turns. So I mean here's the thing. It's a deck that can afford to play like a tempo deck because it's like once I get to like six, seven, eight mana, right? Like So on six mana, they can start casting their epiphanies. On eight mana, they can start copying the epiphanies. And so all they have to do is just live until they get right yeah and it's it's not that hard to do it you know it's like they burn out one or two of your early creatures they counter your chariot and or ren and seven you know they resolve like a memory deluge and they're already there right it's like they're already to that combo spot and then if you're not running blue then you're just totally at the mercy of whatever their spells are doing right so yeah i think that it's a solid plan and especially because they do recoup so much card advantage with cards like memory deluge you can really afford to put some just kind of like little tempo-y cards in your deck like that. I also want to say interesting sideboard spot. This, I think, was one of your picks from Strixhaven. Maybe I'm not remembering this right, but I'm not sure. Both of the most played lists have four heated debates in the sideboard. Oh, baby. I knew this card was going to see play. Spell can't be countered. Kill target goldspan or target chariot. Yep, exactly. Not a bad card. Now, couldn't, couldn't they have just made it five, though? Couldn't they have just made it five damage? Arjuna. Arjuna always wanting a little more. Just I just, I mean, let's agree, right? That if it were five damage, it would have just been, I think, a solidly playable card in general, right? I don't know, man. Like, Soulseer did enough at five. 
And this card in some spots is a lot better. Like in this standard, it's a lot better. There's pretty much no indestructible threats apart from Arlen. So there you go. I think that the two decks that I wanted to talk about most today were Izzet and Selesnya. And now that we've kind of gotten a lot of the talking points over, we might go through these decks a little quicker. Yeah. But we'll see, knowing us. The next one you might have some words about is actually the number one win rate is the third most played deck at 9.6% of the meta. Can you guess what it is? Uh, hmm. Let's go with mono green. Ding, ding, ding. All right, we got one. We you got still have one. your connection to the broccoli and the trees, <laughs> my friend. If there's one thing I know, right, this is what's going to happen when a new set drops. Is A of all, Crokies is going to be working on some kind of like aggro, white-based you know we'll get to that silly whatever right that he does like croakies loves to just kind of gank people out or like come up with some kind of ridiculous like endless value while hurting your opponent kind of combo whatever that's kind of his style and then meanwhile covert go blue is going to be like trying to just lay a deep groove in that control matter and then be of all be of all and then be of all (laughs) this actually see of all right and then see of all (laughs) We know that Romti is going to brew the next mono green list, which is going to be able to get you up into Numbered Mythic. And then all of the Acolytes are going to run out and craft that and start jamming on the ladder. So I actually watched Romti kind of wading into the meta and, and making some of his initial builds. And he was getting pretty frustrated. It was fairly, fairly hostile to his lists. But he seems to have cracked the code and he seems to have come up with a fresh version of the list, which can take you all away he actually tweeted recently just on a personal note he tweeted recently that he's taking a step back from being like hellbent on reaching number one every month he's it's just a good old like magic life balance thing that's going on there so uh, you're probably going to see less of him dominating at number one that doesn't mean that his lists aren't as good as they used to be it's possible they could be but there's no correlation with his rank he's just kind of taking it easy uh he also has a kid on the way i think so that probably has something to do with it I think I found his list. I see like four inscription of abundance. I, I see death bonnet sprout. Death bonnet sprout, which is a card which, you know, I think both of us probably had our eye on, but we didn't choose to highlight it in the set review. Seems to be doing good work for him. I can't believe it, man. I, yeah. I did not see that coming. Oh, really? One of the options. I mean, I felt like you'd have to somehow get graveyard paid to play it. I just don't think you can get away with having a one mana one one for two or three turns. I don't know. I'm surprised. Yeah. I think that he was just like, if my creatures are living, I'm winning. And if they're not living, then my death bonnets are kind of a resilient threat, right? They're kind of playing that role of the pelt collector where like they start out weak. And then at a key point in the game, you suddenly look over and you're like, oh, wait, that's actually really big now. And now I have to deal with that. You know, mm-hmm. so it does kind of put your opponent in a little bit of a pinch where like they, they keep killing your larger creatures. And then, you know, on turn four or five, like suddenly that smaller creatures kind of flip, basically it flips over to the, you know, the backside. And now all of a sudden you have some big creatures again. So I, I can believe it. I totally see it. Some of the higher win rate decks, we've got a version with a 65.3% win rate. We've got a version with a 69% win rate. There it is. They, they're running four Briarbridge trackers. And mm. this, this, this was a card that became a four of in my version of best of one mono green for the video that I made. Okay. And it was a card that I was originally like, yeah, I'll run a couple of those. And it turns out like the card is, I think, better than I thought. It does a lot of sneaky things for the deck. The vigilance is 
surprisingly good because it means that you can keep getting in there and ticking up, you know, putting those counters on your Briar Ridge tracker with your Ranger class. Because Mm -hmm. you're often in these places where it's like, if I attack, I get the value out of my Ranger class. If I don't attack, I miss out on that. But if you do attack, you risk falling behind in tempo. Having a vigilance threat, which you didn't have otherwise besides Faceless Haven, now it's like kind of free to just keep swinging with the tracker, which they don't really want to trade with anyway because you're going to draw a card off it eventually anyhow. There are two other sneaky things with it. One, it kind of lets your chariot draw cards because you can copy the clue Yep. And the other is you can attack, and because you use Vigilance and your tracker's not tapped, use Jasper's Sentinel to cast another card after yep. the combat. That's all good stuff. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you end up feeling like you get your three mana worth of investment out of it. Yeah, more yeah. than I thought I would. I thought I'd be like, this is okay. Yeah. After playing with it a while, I'm like, oh, this is kind of the nuts. Maybe you only need two because it feels kind of like a glue card but Mm -hmm. i've been really happy with four and Mm -hmm. i don't think i'd go back okay yeah that's good to know interesting that at least the list that i'm looking at that rumty posted five days ago he's not playing any Mm -hmm. which i think is really interesting i also just i think his list is really interesting so i just want to read through it so he's playing four kazandu mammoths three death bonnet sprouts four swarm shamblers so seven one drops let's just take a, a moment to note that he's also got four werewolf pack leader four old growth troll and three gnarled professor so it's kind of interesting that this list feels like really lean and mean to me like I feel like it's a it's a really low curve, except for that gnarly professor is kind of interesting. And he has the four ranger classes, and as far as I can tell, he's not running any Asika's chariots. None. And also no Jaspira Sentinels. No Sentinels, no Ren and Sevens, no Chariots. Yeah. This is pure mono green aggro. Like this is yep. stompy. Exactly. So I just, I find that really interesting. It seemed like he really felt like going to the board was important with this list. And so let's see what he's grabbing from the board with his gnarled professor. He's got environmental sciences, which is obviously not the main course here, but he's got one copy of containment breach. He's got two expanded anatomy, two introduction to annihilation and two mascot exhibition. I find two mascot exhibition interesting because this is such a lean and mean deck has 23 lands in it. I mean, I guess the Kazandu man do give you a little bit of lands, but I think in this deck you want to play them as threats if you can, and really no other way to generate mana. So, you know, he obviously seems to feel like it's going to get there eventually, I guess. Don't forget about that old growth troll, man. Yeah, I guess that's true. The troll ramp. (laughs) When I was playing mono green for my video, I was just like thrilled every time they killed my troll. Yeah. Oh, I was so happy. Just getting to trade it with something, a removal spell or a body, and getting to ramp out of it, I felt like I was just winning. I felt like I was further ahead than I deserved to be. Yeah. So, I mean, I I think if there's one thing that this list proves, it's just that there's always different ways to build mono green. And I think, I mean, obviously, Rumty's doing very well with this, but... I think that there are just still endless ways to build the deck. And I think that what's good is going to change as the format goes along. And uh, I do find it really interesting that there's no Asika's Chariot. I think that's been considered kind of a must include in this archetype up until this point. So maybe he just felt like people were prepared for it and he wanted to do something different. He's like you. That's why you two get along. Just a hipster. (laughs) Like, well, now that's popular, I'm off it. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, over it. Over it. Now I've got to beat it. I can't play mono green from like a seat of dominant position. I've got to be the underdog beating what's uh, popular at all times. You know me too well. <laughs> the difference between us is that Rumty gets to number one. What, you don't? <laughs> <laughs> you know what, man? I, I, I thought what, I was man? on a number one mythic podcast. <laughs> I'd get there if I just played enough. All right, next deck. <laughs> All right. What do you think is the number four most popular deck at about an 8% meta share that has the number six best win rate at 54%? Mm, this is where I'm starting to get a little hazy. I'm guessing it's some kind of black deck. This is the Crokey's Boros Aggro. Oh, okay. Yeah. Have you watched yeah. him play this? I haven't. I've heard the deck's pretty epic, though. When I was in his chat, I described it as Gandalf Aggro, saying that it removes things and draws cards, but also hits face. And he agreed with that. Okay. Yeah, we're talking about a Boros deck that runs for just the aggressive cards, for Intrepid Adversaries, the one that buffs the squad, for Luminarch Aspirants, two Reckless Stormseekers, mm -hmm. and then we'll say for card advantage, there are four Moonvale Regents, the new 4-4 Flying Dragon that can draw cards for the number of colors you control when you cast a spell or the number of colors in that spell i think mm -hmm. that's what it is yeah. it's when it dies it's for the number of colors that you control something takes damage it also has four copies of showdown of the scalds two copies of paladin class then in the removal category it's kind of crazy there are four copies of brutal cathar there are four copies of Skyclave Apparition. There are two copies of Portable Hole. There are four copies of Shatter Skull Smashing. And there are also four copies of Sacred Fire. Off the top of your head, you know that one? Oh, is that? That's the Boros one, right? It's the Lightning Helix at home, right? Baby, yes, definitely. Baby Flashback Lightning Helix. There Six you go. mana to deal two damage and gain two life. Or on the front side, you know, the non-flashback is uh, a Boros, a white and a red to deal two wow. and gain two life. So this is really a deck that never, ever, 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 ever runs out of stuff to do, huh? It actually doesn't. It, it was a very impressive deck to watch. Mm -hmm. I think that my favorite thing about it would be that you get to this point where it looked like the game was over. The opponent might have like a Renin 7 and you just have a couple of dorks. And you have a Moonvale Regent and you flashback Sacred Fire and draw two cards, you know. And yeah. it's like two more pieces of gas or maybe a land and something. You play one, you play it and you draw another card and you play it and you draw another card. It's yeah. definitely... I, I would call it the best Moonvale Regent deck I've seen. I'm a little bit surprised that he didn't spring for a Naya build, because I know that Crokies is a huge fan of Jaspira Sentinel. Oh, I'm sure it's there. I'm sure it's coming. Like the Sentinel Innkeeper version of the deck, I to me anyway, seems like it allows you to go off a lot harder and, uh, you know, probably do some ridiculous things. But yeah, like you said, maybe he just couldn't find room for it or wanted to try something else. Another cool reason to play Naya right now is that the mana is really good. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you get to play two of the three slow lands, which seem perfect in a deck like this. I mean, I guess, you know, those snow lands don't enable cards like Jaspira Sentinel very well. So maybe that's part of the reason. I also hope that uh, Crokies doesn't hear this, but the builds of his deck, you know, his his head's big enough. But the builds of his deck are significantly higher on the win rate. Like I reported that oh, this yeah. was the sixth highest win rate deck at 54%. His yeah. builds are all 58, 59. There's a 65% that are all very, very close to his deck, like one or two card difference providing the variation. Yeah, you know, if when you're copying a big brain mage, you should probably just try to stick to what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I'm one of those, I can't do it. 
<laughs> I can't just copy a deck and play it. I yeah. have to. I have to tinker. I'm the if, same. If I'm not tinkering, I don't feel like I'm playing magic. You know. Yeah, you don't feel the ownership, right? Well, I mean, I think it's the reason why I take decks and make them worse. Well, speaking of that, the next two, number five and number six on the list, are Gruel Werewolves and Gruel Aggro, each at about 7%. So combined 14% of the mana being Gruel, but in the win rate category, Gruel Aggro doing way better than Werewolves, uh, Mm. about 57% versus about 54 for Werewolves. So seems like the big differentiator being Jasper Sentinel, whereas the Gruel Werewolf builds don't appear to have any kind of one drop. So this is interesting. I would have thought that with is it and other control lists in this format going back to being a draw go kind of a style, I would have thought that werewolves could have really gained an edge there. It makes me wonder if the control lists are just doing a good enough job of controlling boards and maybe also the splash damage from like a Seeker's Chariot and Renin 7, meaning that like most of their Arlins don't resolve. Because I just would have thought like the, the whole day-night mechanic I feel like is designed to punish control. I mean, there's many implications of it, but for me, that's the biggest one is that like it makes Drago control look pretty bad, right? I mean, as a control mage, I've not enjoyed the amount of time that it is night at all it's <laughs> yep. not fun but i will say that there is a sweet counter to the day night cycle called divide by zero okay. not only does it set back the card that they tried to resolve on the night side or had in play on the night side but provides you another spell like environmental sciences which makes double spelling pretty easy to flip mm-hmm. things back over uh, it's been okay it's not the total nightmare i thought it would be i also just want to say there is like these lists of gruel we could just call it gruel stuff and call yeah. it 14 percent of meta it is all over yep, the place everything. both in representation and win rate it is like there are a lot of 60 percent decks in here there are a lot of 40 percent decks in here and there's very little consensus in the gruel selection there are 4,800 matches played and the most played card for card identical list has 550 okay. so we're seeing a yep. very tiny representation of the meta in this way yeah and it just goes to show that again this is like mono green there's just like a lot of good builds or like is it right a lot of good builds and it's probably going to take the world championship to really kind of winnow down to which are the best versions of these lists to be running or some content creators could really kill it yeah could could Uh, happen apparently that's not me yet because i don't have any lists of high representation not that i pay attention to these things (laughs) see like this is where like the testing team really comes in right because yes like as genius as you might be covert go blue and you've contributed many a dozen of wonderful lists to any given standard format but you just don't have like the literal house full of you know people playing for 10 hours a day 12 hours a day 16 hours a day comparing notes you know racking up those games which is really what the pros do i mean it's no exaggeration like the pros will do this they'll just they'll look at the entire list in the pool of gruel cards they'll like you know they'll divvy them up they'll come up with some ideas they'll be like all right jimmy you're playing this version kyle you're playing that version you know go to right and then they they come back at the end of each day and they compare notes and that's usually how they manage to like get through this kind of vast amount of information that they have to do yeah that's how decks get tuned that's how formats get broken versus content creators like 
at most, what am I going to do? If, if I were focused on one deck big time, the most I might play it is like six to eight hours a day, and I'm limited to only my experience. Uh, not only that, I'm limited to what I played against on ladder, which often, as we've kind of mentioned in this podcast, not the tuned versions, no. not the decks that are usually pushing the envelope. A lot of times it's the cards that my opponent happens to still own from last standard, and a good win rate against that isn't indicative of a broken deck. Yeah, so. so it's tough. And I think that that we talk a lot about pro magic and we've kind of seen our survey results from our listeners that they're not as necessarily into it. But I think a lot of people took for granted what pro magic gave to us. Yes. Which are really, really finely tuned lists. And without yeah. that, yeah, we are kind of left in an interesting brewing wilderness. And I, I enjoy the wilderness, but I also enjoy seeing the result. You know, yeah. I, I like both. I like the whole the whole cycle, the whole circle of life, you might say. I'm with you, man. And I mean, crafties, if you sometimes wonder why people like Covert Go Blue and myself might have a little bit of an edge or a little bit more insight, right? I mean, we're getting a lot of information directly from like some of the best magic players in the world, right? So CGB and I are like hungry on Twitter and hungry for tournament results and hungry for all of this stuff because we like watching the best minds in magic do their thing. Right. So I think sometimes like if you feel like you're a little bit behind the curve, it's probably just because you're not paying attention to, you know, people like Gabriel Nassif and Seth Manfield and Paulo Vitor, who are just like operating at a whole other level of play. To be fair, the current magic system is very bad at letting people know about any of this. That's very true. And I think that's part of it's something I love about our podcast is we do try to take all this in, condense it, and regurgitate it back. Absolutely. As kind of a bookend to this gruel thing, someone that I follow and good magic player, Pretty MTG, posted what, after a moment, you realize is a meme tweet. And it's basically like, OMG, 69% win rate, you know, this deck is crazy, blah, 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 blah. And you look at the list, and it's basically like your classic Gruul shell with Jaspira Sentinel and the Asika's Chariot and the Goldspan Dragon and stuff. And it's running four Demi Liches and four Harness Infinities. The point being that Pretty MTG's perception of the format is just that like random content creator A, B, or C is like taking the gruel shell and just throwing some random cards into it and winning a lot because just like a Seeker's Chariot is a good card, right? So it's kind of hilarious because uh, we'll get to how I basically did just that to in order oh, to good. build one of the decks that I've been having the most fun playing in the format. I'm looking forward to hearing about your Demulich harness and <laughs> Yeah, dude. It's good stuff. <laughs> you gotta love that. The last two decks, I'm just gonna ruin the suspense. Number seven is Demir Control, which mm, is okay. posting a blistering 46.4% win rate as an archetype. Alright, you gotta love that. You gotta love that. <laughs> and Mono White Aggro is at number eight, only 3% of the best of three meta. If you're, you know, if you want to go play there and uh it's got a 57 percent win rate really wow yeah higher than i expected what's also really fun is there's a win rate graph on untapped gg mm. it shows exactly where the line is where innistrad midnight hunt was released and every single deck that i have mentioned has seen their win rate since day one declining at a stock market is crashing look pace <laughs> like 
all of their win rates start way up here, like day one, because they're picking on people who are refining and yeah. the win rates just keep going down. It's kind of interesting because these are known quantities and they're powerful decks. The only exception is Selesium Midrange, which is more leveled off and slightly ticking up now since the Hooglandia open. But it's just kind of funny to see the effect on a new standard where everybody comes in like, yeah, our polished, cool strategies work, of course. And then over time, the innovations and the technology gets found out and the innovative lists start winning more. It's kind of, I, I just always think that's cool. Absolutely. So why don't we pivot into talking about what we've been playing? Because I'm Ooh. sure there's plenty of juice there. I hope so. I want to hear from you. Okay, cool. Let's start with kind of what I was working on last week and I've been thinking about a little bit this week before we get into some of the really new stuff. So, of course, Arjuna, notable Simic Mage, notable Saltai Mage. I've just been kicking the tires and trying to see how well any of the previous work that I've done holds up in this current format with mixed results. I think for like day one, I had this Saltai build that I built, which wasn't too far off of my Simic list. It was basically just a couple of Dome Blades, a couple of Ren and Sevens, a couple of Meat Hook Massacres, and it was otherwise a fairly stock build of my Simic list that I've been running forever. Probably have about a 64% win rate with that deck overall. However, it started to drop off rapidly once some of these new lists started to really hit the rotation with Is It being just like a nightmare matchup, basically. So I really had to reconsider consider. And I really just, after thinking about the format more, I really think that Simic, if Simic is going to succeed, it's going to have to do something different. So there's a couple of reasons for that. The first one is that Coma and Crafties, y'all were trying to get me on the Coma train, man. They were trying, CGB petitioned, everyone petitioned to finally get the Arjuna man to admit that Coma was a playable magic card. And then you know what happened, Covert Go Blue? Storm the Festival is better. That is not what happened. No? <laughs> no, that's... Okay, go no. on. Fine. That is Maybe I don't know. That's not one of the three cards I was going to mention. <laughs> I actually think... prediction. <laughs> I actually think in the head-to-head that Coma's is pretty good against those cards. No. The three cards that were printed, first of all, Fading Hope, embarrassing. Second of all, Burning Hands, embarrassing. Third of all, whatever the Dome Blade is. What, what's that card called? Infernal Grasp. Infernal Grasp. Okay. I can't tell you how many times playing my Saltai list in the Simic Mirror, my opponent would resolve their coma and it was just like, boom, dead on the spot. Embarrassing, right? Now, this, now, of course, this especially applies to best of three, but even in best of one, man, like coma's not looking good. And okay, well, let's talk about best of three. Which deck in the format is not going to be running one of those three cards? It's like, it's probably pretty much the Selesnia deck and that's it, right? I guess so, yeah. Yeah, and maybe Mono Green, right? But Mono Green's probably just a slaughter anyway. That's probably one of your best matchups, so you don't have to worry about that. But like, it's just, mm, it's just not good anymore, Crafties. The format's moved in a different direction. Now, I do think, you know, I've been watching other notable Simic Mage, Ali Eldrazi, try out some, and he's been actually going hard on Simic. I think he's really trying to figure out whether like, you know, his previous list or some version of his previous list still has legs in the format. I personally, this is no dig on him. He's a much better magic player than I will ever be. But I personally have never really thought that his builds were like the best versions. I think if I were going to pick a version that wasn't mine, I'd probably actually go more towards like your style CGB, which I think, you know, is... It's not my favorite, but it would definitely be my second choice. Thanks. So his builds are pretty different. And 
Yeah, I don't know. He seems to think that it's viable. I think that one of his plans against Storm the Festival, Chariot, Renin 7 is Cyclone Summoner. And I think it's true that like if you're able to ramp harder than your Storm the Festival opponent, which you most of the time will be able to do because you're a dedicated ramp deck and they're a bit more of a mid-range ramp deck. So if you're able to put down more mana and then you're able to like bounce your opponent's board faster and you're able to snowball advantage quicker and like get down your giants and get a couple of Alrun's Epiphanies and stuff off. Yeah, I think you're probably going to clown those decks, right? So I actually do think that if Storm the Festival decks get big enough in this format, and if there are dominant enough parts of the meta, we might actually see like some of these Cyclone Summoner decks actually do good work. You also get to play cool cards like Decisive Denial, which counters all of the problematic spells that uh, we were talking about, and Divide by Zero, which you know doesn't counter them. But like, boy, when your opponent spends ten mana on a spell and you get to divide it, you've got to feel pretty good about that. Can I say quickly, if yeah. they spend ten mana on a flashback storm, the festival divide does counter it. Oh, does it? Yeah, because when you flashback a spell, it will be exiled if it goes anywhere oh. from that point from the stack. Oh, I didn't know that. Like I found this to be huge in the control mirrors mm-hmm. I've been playing where I try to save my divide by zeros for the flashback memory deluge mm-hmm. because yeah, they don't get it back. Okay, that's sweet, dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So divide looking better and better, really. So, yeah. yeah. You hit their flashback storm the festival, it's exiled. Yep. And one of the best things that I've found that Simic was able to do in 2022 is you could actually play a pretty good tempo deck. Like you put out a few more lands than your opponent, you put down a good threat, and then you just divide all of that big plays and you just crush them, right? So that's like definitely a thing that you could do. So uh, for me, that's that's where Simic is in the format is probably trying to prey on some of these like, you know, big board presence decks. But I think other than that, it's feeling a little weak to me. I've tried Saltai and one of the issues I found with Saltai is just that I found it to be Simic and Saltai to be very, very weak against these it lists. They're just too efficient. You don't have enough interaction to really slow them down. Even post-board, it's kind of hard. So I feel like these lists get preyed on more than anything by control lists and by is it lists, which I think just have a kind of a better plan. They can kind of control all of the like heavy hitting stuff that you do. And you can't really leverage your mana advantage fast enough to make a difference against like copying a bunch of Alrun's Epiphanies and stuff. So in conclusion, Crafties, I feel like Simic and Saltai at least the way that I've been thinking about it doesn't feel tier one to me right now. Okay. And I think that if if it's going to be tier one, it has to really be doing something different. And so I was experimenting a lot like today, for example, I was just experimenting with a lot of different builds. One of the hardest things to figure out is whether a Simic or Saltai list should be a Storm the Festival list. It's very inconclusive to me. <laughs> so so have the first person I saw doing this was Crokey's, but mm. it's come up a few times now. Have you seen the Storm the Festival Simic ramp deck with four copies of Grafted Identity? That's the control magic that makes you sacrifice a creature. Okay, so I haven't seen the Grafted version. I have seen the Mind Flayer version playing Croaking Counterpart. Yeah, that's the Brian Gottlieb's yeah, deck. Yeah, it's like yep. a similar, right? Similar idea. You just steal all your opponent's stuff that matters. Ish. Yeah. Mind Flayer, you know, is a pretty fragile thing that it is. dies to a lot of the interaction. You're talking about coma dying. Mind Flayer will definitely die. Yeah. The cool thing with Grafted Identity is when you hit it off Storm, you it just enters the battlefield. Yeah. You don't have to, don't pay, have the to cost, pay the cost. So you don't have to sacrifice anything. You just get their best card with plus one, plus one. And it's enchanted, which is a lot generally harder to remove. 
And here's something that we learned in Theros Beyond Death, too, that when you return an enchantment to the battlefield, there's no targeting happening. Hexproof yes. doesn't play around it. So it basically comes yep. back to the battlefield, and it's like the legend rule. You just you got to decide right when it hits. You pick a thing, no trigger goes on the stack, and you get it. I, I'm not sure what hexproof thing we're, we're snatching, but uh, it, if there is one, it's a pretty cool move. Yeah, Snakeskin Veil, right? It plays around Snakeskin Veil, which is probably yep. the only thing at the moment in general like effects like that you can hit off storm i guess if you hit like binding it still targets but yeah when you hit an aura that takes control there's just no window you just get it because with most auras the targeting happens when it's on the stack yeah that's right so yeah i mean that sounds sweet i don't know how good it is i think it's been noted before but it would be amazing if either grafted identity or mind flare could take planeswalkers neither of them can which i think makes them substantially worse than the current meta but probably still pretty good Taking Planeswalkers is busted only because now there's good Planeswalkers. Basically, there's one good Planeswalker. It's Ren. (laughs) I don't know. Lolth is all right, but stealing Lolth, it just gets beaten to death by her own spiders. Wouldn't mean anything. Ren is a house. Lolth is definitely one of those build-around planeswalkers, not necessarily just good on its own. You kind of need to have a game plan that goes with it. So, Oh, I thought the card was trash for weeks. (laughs) <laughs> like, like you can't just put it in a deck with black. You had to find like this yeah. shell where you're really happy sacrificing your blood gas and your eye twitch all the time. Exactly. So I don't know. One of my issues, I guess one of my issues with like a Simic Storm the Festival list is just that I really do, maybe I'm wrong in this, maybe I'm going to need to reevaluate, but I really do feel like the Simic advantage right now is the seven mana spell advantage, right? And I think the reason it was good in 2022 was that you had a bunch of these seven mana spells that were really good. You had Allrun's Epiphany, you had Cyclone Summoner, you had Coma. Those were all really good in that particular format. And so you got really paid off for all the ramping that you were doing. I think that if you're storming the festival, like you just can't play that many cards in your deck that cost more than five mana. Yeah, you just don't want them. Yeah, it doesn't match up with your plan, right? Basically, the only thing that you're ramping to after the first Storm the Festival is the flashback Storm the Festival, or maybe double spelling, right? But like, other than that, that's kind of it. So your like fours and fives in the color combo have to be really hard hitting. And I just don't know. Basically, what we're highlighting here is that blue's best fours and fives are kind of the Stelios stuff or maybe Imrith. And so how good those cards end up being in the format is going to determine how good a Simic Storm the Festival list can be really and i just don't think like i think that some of the other color combos have more compelling things to be doing you know golgari we've mentioned has binding the old gods which is very good um if you are doing a golgari kind of a thing then you can put cards like lolth in which are you know probably better on average especially if you're doing kind of a chariot token make a bunch of creatures stuff i think lolth can be definitely decent there and especially if you're doing any kind of uh scoot swarming i think scoot swarm and lolth go very well together so my current opinion is that you're probably better off doing some kind of Golgari thing with Storm the Festival. Or, yeah, I don't know about Selesnia. The Selesnia list is, it's really hard for me to gauge whether that one's going to be relevant in the coming weeks. I, I think that in the end, I, I don't think that a green and white deck, it, it would have to have like this most powerful, unstoppable endgame. And I just don't think it does to to be mm-hmm. like the real top end of the format. Because as soon as somebody adds blue to their deck, then they have a key counterspell in the right place. And then their version is the better version. Or if there's something that just does more with Storm the Festival. 
it feels like that will beat it eventually. So yeah, I'm pretty I'm yeah. I'm also really cynical of the green white deck, but I think it mm-hmm. was a good kind of yardstick for look what this can do because it was on nobody's radar. Like green white yeah. ramp. You're gonna pick that as who 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 would put money on that horse in the first yeah. tournament of the season? Probably no one. Yeah, I would be shocked. Like I would be literally shocked if the Selesnya version ended up being the best storm the festival deck. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling it'll come back to Saltai. I think that that color combination across the last two years of Standard has proven that when you have black, which can kill most creatures, and when you have blue, which can counter big non-creature spells, and when you have green, which draws a bunch of cards and also does everything, does everything, <laughs> including put decent threats in positions to win, I Saltai usually as a color combination is highly favored. The other one that's we'll see is Jund. Jund seems like yeah. it can do everything other than counter spells, but hand disruption is kind of another way to counter spells in its own way. Yep, and I mean, hitting Gold Span Dragon off of your storm sounds pretty gassed to me. And actually, um, and I do want to hear, because you mentioned that you'd been playing a John version of the list, so I definitely want to hear about that. But let me tell you about the deck which I settled on for this past week and which I had the most success with. I think CGB's at least taken a cursory glance at this list. So I made this tweet where I was like, okay, all right, you guys got me. Storm the Festival seems at least decent, good enough to win a tournament, so let's play with it. And I basically put together a list which I thought at the time was kind of a meme. I was like, why don't we just make a Storm the Festival list, which is Storm the Festival and then like every one of the other best cards and standard. And it ended up being a Teemo list. It's basically a Gruul Storm the Festival list, but it's running Alrin's Epiphany and a couple of Quandrix Cultivators because I'm just, I can't quit that card. I love the turtle too much. <laughs> the turtle, yes. The turtle. I mean, come on, man. It's my trademark. But anyway, basically the core of the list is Jaspira Sentinel, Magda, Innkeeper, and then we're ramping right. There's, don't even remember if I have any three drops in the list. None. I'm looking at it right now. Oh, awesome. All right. Yeah, I'll, I'll see if I can remember it, do it by memory. And then, of course, we have uh, some chariots. We have four chariots. I think we have two cultivators. And then we're running the full four each of Goldspan Dragon and Renin 7. And then we have four Alrin's Epiphanies. Did I miss anything? Three copies of Storm the Freaking Festival. Oh, of course. Storm the Festival. Two right? copies of Emergent Sequence. That's right, Emergent Sequence, yeah, which ended up being, I think, pretty good alongside Ren and Seven specifically. So anyway, I threw this deck together. I knew it wouldn't be terrible because, you know, all the cards are good. The mana base is fine. You know, it's it's not like a jank deck. It's like a deck that can actually do something. But I was surprised by how well it actually performed. So the first takeaway that we can take from this is that good cards are good. If you have a deck which is basically a bunch of mana sources and then a bunch of the most powerful cards at like every point on the higher level of the curve yeah you're probably going to win some games and i absolutely did this is the most busted sequence that you can do with the deck you go jaspira sentinel into magda and then from there you can cast another innkeeper into another jaspira sentinel that's on turn two by the way and then you on tap on turn three and then you can go gold span dragon into a Seeker's Chariot. So the the mana actually does line up. And when you're on the play, my friends, in best of one, that is game. That is game 100% of the time. (laughs) 100% of the time, all right? 
So if you don't manage to assemble the wombo combo, you can fairly reliably get like hopefully a turn four chariot into like a turn five Renan seven. That's pretty good. And then of course, if the game goes any length of time, then you have your storm the festival into, you know, a bunch of really good four and five drops. That feels really nice. And finally, you can also sometimes just chain together a sweet like gold span dragon orange epiphany finish with the deck as well. So I don't actually know how good it is. I will say that Channel Fireball writer and longtime friend of the show, Josh Silvestri, was having a conversation with me in our Discord about how he was absolutely crushing with the deck and best of one. And we were comparing notes on it. So I've gotten some buy-in from at least one player whose opinion I respect very much. Yeah, anyway, I just think that this shell is a heck of a lot of fun. And if you have these cards crafted already, I would definitely recommend that you try it out. Your screenshot says 16 and 5. Yeah. In best of one. What percentage was that? I don't remember. 76% it says. Yeah, yeah. It was doing pretty well. Dude, that's rolling, baby. That's not bad. It's not bad. That's not bad. Follow ArenaCraftPod on Twitter to get the (laughs) deck list with absolute hot fire right off the presses. I will say, I will say that this list is nothing if not fun, and you get a lot of nices from your opponent. Fun for you, yes. Fun for you. So that that's the list that I had the most fun playing. Like I said, you know, once it came out that the Storm of the Festival card was playable, I had to acquiesce. I had to acquiesce and try it out, and I had a lot of fun. Good. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. It's really, I just want to see you happy, man. It has nothing to do with me. (laughs) I just, I knew you'd like this card. I just, I was like, I was like, how is he not like this card? I got to, I I just know, I know. You saw it, you saw it. Also, you know, to give you some props, CGB, and we're very young in the format, so this card still has plenty of time, but almost zero copies of Primal Adversary showing up anywhere on the ladder. At the yep. World Championship, we'll see. I would love to take a victory lap on my brilliance about the Storm the Festival call, but if there are none at the World Championship and there are primal adversaries, I will still acquiesce to your brilliance. And I'm not just saying this to defend my honor, but I totally agree with you. And I think that one of the things that we have to figure out about Storm the Festival is whether it's the Garuda of the format or not, right? Yep. So, you know, if any of y'all weren't playing when Ikaria released, there was this silly Garuda combo deck, which put like ridiculous numbers of expensive permanents onto the battlefield very quickly and often crushed opponents. And when you were losing to it, it felt very similar to losing to storm the festival however the deck was really not good it was very easy to exploit and after multiple people many people thousands of people calling for it to get banned in the first couple of weeks of the format it disappeared entirely never to be seen again so i don't think that storm the festival is as memeing and bad as garuda was but i do wonder whether it'll end up being a little bit too slow a little bit too plotting so we'll see i i love how you just get that little bit of doubt in there you know it just makes you seem <laughs> so credible after such a disastrously wrong take i'm sorry did a- i say that out loud <laughs> I will fully acknowledge that in week one, I'm getting thrashed. Totally getting thrashed. And, uh, you know, if the worst thing that happens from this is that I hand the L, I mean, I hand the W, as it were, to my podcast co-host, then uh, 
Not the worst thing. Not the worst thing that happens. That's very nice of you to say. Thank you. Anyway, CGB, speaking of the W, what have you been messing around with this week? Well, I've played a lot of different things for my videos, and a lot of it's been fun. Like I said, most of the things have been pretty successful outside of like my first day was pretty rough, but every day since then, we've pretty much been successful. When I'm not trying to like research a deck and uh, do like a video, for example, I wanted to make the white folks, the white magic, the gathering enthusiasts, the, the white aggro magic, the gathering enthusiasts, I wanted to make them happy. So I put way too much time last night and today into trying to make the white aggro deck good. Right. And and trying to get to where it is. And I think that the deck has to get back into kind of haymaker removal because I don't think going wide is remotely good enough. So now I, the video will be live by the time that you hear this. But the one drop I found is the Stonebinder Familiar. That's the Exile Dude, right? The Exile Dude. And you know what goes really well with the Exile Dude? Apparition? Yes. And Brutal Cathar and Elite Spellbinder. Oh, Brutal Cathar, right. I'm going to make this difficult. What two-drop goes well with it? Ooh, an exiling two-drop, huh? It's from the new set. Mm, yeah, you got me there. Can't think of it. Sun Gold Sentinel is one in a white for a 3-2. Oh, yes. Exiles from the Graveyard. Yep. Okay, I'm actually really glad that you're playing this card. I've been impressed with this card on the ladder. I've also mm -hmm. lost to it on the ladder. How's it been doing for you? First of all, when it enters the battlefield, it exiles a card from a graveyard, or when it attacks, it exiles a card from a graveyard. Just having basically your one drop be able to grow every single turn without even having to necessarily play a specific card or spend mana, it makes the one mana stonebinders familiar so much better. But the 3-2 body on the Sun Gold Sentinel, with the Coven ability... That one in a white, it can gain hexproof from a color of your choice, and it can't be blocked by it that can't color. Be blocked. Ooh. Pretty nice, dude. I thought that would be hard. It's yeah. not hard with white creatures. Like your your nope. deck is playing creatures every turn. Coven yeah. in general is easier to achieve than I thought it would be. So you know the card that really turns it on is Luminarch Aspirant, right? Because yes. that card just fills in the gaps on your Coven curve. It so does. Nice. And you can just keep pounding those counters onto your now unblockable thing. Plus, if you have the mana, two mana makes it unblockable, but two mana also gives it hexproof from a color. So if you have four mana and you're ahead on board, you just keep tapping two mana, counter their Infernal Grasp, counter their Divide by yep. Zero, counter whatever it is, and then use the other two to keep it unblockable and just attack until they die. It's pretty brutal. The scenario that I've lost to it in several times is this happens really commonly with White Trash where like, you know, you, you spend the first four or five turns of the game dropping to a really precipitously low life total while you're kind of building your stuff up and then maybe you sweep the board and whatever. And the scenario I've lost to it is that they drop the late one, right? They drop it in the late game when they mm -hmm. also happen to have a lot of mana and you know they have like some flashback creatures or what what's that mechanic called disturb disturb yeah so they have a couple disturb creatures that come back after your sweeper they drop this dude they manage to get that coven again and now they just have a bunch of mana and you're right the thing's basically unkillable and basically unblockable and it can end games really really quickly it's actually a pretty great card and i love it with stonebinders familiar once i got that pair together i was like okay i have another one drop because yeah. if you're not gonna play code spell cleric and you're not gonna play monk of the open fist your one drop spot is mostly empty except for usher usher of the fallen yeah. is your only one drop and i needed another one or you're just not aggressive enough 
There's, it's yeah. not enough payoff to be a monocolored aggressive deck to only have one, uh, four copies of a one drop. So once Stonebinder's familiar fit in, the deck really came together. And I'm running like, it's a backwards freaking curve. It's like eight one drops and then like 12 two drops and then like 14 three drops. But yeah. somehow it's working and I like it more than the dump your hand, like second spell version. I know that that mm-hmm. has an appeal to a type of magic player who just wants to get rank fast. But I love actually having to decide which three mana play is going to have the better and most important impact and how it leads you to victory. Because you will have to decide. Do you play Brutal Cathar and exile their old growth troll or do you play Elite Spellbinder and get a look at the hand to make sure that chariot doesn't come down the next turn? You know, those are interesting and difficult decisions that are fun to make. By the way, Spellbinder is still every bit as good as it ever was. Oh, yeah. People should be playing that card. It'll get the job done. Yeah, I I think that Spellbinder and Redain are some of the best things you can do to storm the festival players and probably give you your best chance in those matchups. But yeah, I I think that Sun Gold Sentinel and Stonebinder's Familiar deserve a serious look because there's so many other cards that exile on turn three that getting your Stonebinder to go, you know, first turn 1-1, then a 2-2, then a 3-3, and then a 4-4, just grow it every turn isn't too hard. And I think Mm -hmm. that white in general, you just kind of, I want to move away from, I play like 21 ones and two twos because i just don't think they're getting through reliably anymore so that's that's something that i worked really hard on when i'm not working hard on decks like that i'm playing blue white control and i don't think that should surprise anybody but i can't remember the last time i was winning like this with blue white control Mm. like feeling unbeatable most of the time to be honest. And I'm sticking with it. It's obnoxious. People hate it, but I think it's true. I don't think that the Planeswalkers are good enough. I think the devious cover-up loop endgame mm-hmm. is that good. I'm supporting it more with three to four divide by zeros, fe- fetching mascot exhibitions, which is how the games mostly end. But mm-hmm. the devious cover-up loop is what provides that endless inevitability that you're just never going to run out of these things people hate. Devastating Mastery was not in my video that I made on day two of the format, but it is the truth when it comes to cleaning up Ren and Seven, Asika's Chariot, and company. When you're casting mm. Devastating Mastery and then uh, getting it back, just shuffling it back into the deck and playing it again, like... It just feels like you've got this. Like, you're never going to be in too much trouble, especially with four Field of Ruins for the creature lands. Once you kind of put that together, nothing's really going to touch you unless it has haste, and you just gain so much life with this deck, you're not in danger of getting cheesed out. Sunset Revelry, Faithful Mending, it gains so much life. Even the environmental sciences out of the board, you're, you're back up to 20 in no time, it feels like. Well, and another thing that I get from looking at your list is that cards like Memory, Deluge... And the the sabotage. What's that card called again? The sabotage. Oh, the, the, sabotage. the counter spell. Devious cover up. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So those two cards, I think, just give you the grind that you need to compete with these Storm the Festival decks, right? Yeah. Because you know, otherwise, you know, you'd probably get buried by them in a long game. But your ability to just, like you said, keep getting back those board wipes, keep drawing a bunch of cards, keep digging really deep into your deck to find what you need. And then, of course, just not decking, because that's actually a thing that could happen. Uh, yeah, I mean, that sounds, I mean, hellish for your opponents, but sweet for you. And uh, sounds like a really solid plan. Yeah, I'm up to two test of talents in that deck as well. And a big reason for that is if I'm against aggro, I just pitch them to the Faithful Mending and dig for Wraths. Yeah. 
and I feel really good about that. It's part of why I love Faithful Mending because in the past, running situational cards was would always get you. And now it's like, I'm all, just always looking for something to discard to Faithful Mending to get closer to the card that's good. But Test yeah. of Talents, either like against these flashback spells like Storm the Festival and Memory Deluge is just oof. <laughs> like you cut the teeth right out of the uh the predator there with that yes move. you do yeah you do oh, fang yeah. them really good oh yeah i'm sure those is it lists are just not stoked about that at all no epiphanies yeah baby yeah baby so now what happens if they're foretold do they get yanked out of exile as well no they stay foretold okay. so if they've already foretold like two or three epiphanies you're gonna have to go through dealing with each one but one of my one of my favorite things to do is get, like i got to do this uh, yesterday. It was really fun. I like to get into a counter war where I lead with test of talents early. So like, say there's a saw it coming on the stack and I target their saw it coming with my test of talents. So they saw it coming my test of talents. So now that's out of foretell, but on the stack and I divide by zero their saw it coming back to their hand. Yeah, and then I get the saw coming it. from their hand with the test talents. That's yeah. awesome, dude. It's so fun. Uh, that's so good. Yeah, divide by zero is so great because if your counter spell was going wrong, you can actually snatch your own counter spell back as well, which is pretty cool. Yeah, so, also very good. Yeah, yeah, that sounds sweet, man. I mean, for anyone who enjoys this style of deck, I fully believe you. It's really good. Um, how's Fateful Absence holding up? Up and down. I tried out a version with two copies for a long time because I found I was discarding it really often to mending in mm -hmm. all kinds of matchups, whether they had creatures, planeswalkers, or whatever. I would just get into these situations where it's like, well, I have a counter spell for the next thing. I have devastating mastery. If anything gets away, I'm just going to pitch absence because why give them the card? But mm -hmm. I ended up back up at four again. It's you need to survive and you need like some really sharp interaction for the thing that sneaks through because you're never going to counter everything. Magic doesn't work that way anymore. There's always going to be something that sneaks through on the board and threatens to run away with the game. And oftentimes people turn to planeswalkers and they turn to chariots and vehicles and planeswalkers are traditionally hard to control. But absence takes care of it and it takes care of it at a low rate and giving them a card as much as I hate it. It's not fun, but I will say this. I, I've used it to my advantage many times. Either I get the card back from Sunset Revelry or I'll like Fateful Absence their thing and then Devastating Mastery and I blow up that, blow that token right up, baby. There you go. Just blow up that clue. You gotta yeah, love it. Got him. Yep. Yeah, that's nice. Well, there you go. It makes the heart grow fonder. So that's nice. Awesome. Anything else you want to say about that list or just whatever else you've been playing? I feel like the exploration of what Ren and Seven chariot deck you should play feels almost never ending. And it it's almost like kind of where you came from, where it doesn't really matter. Like you can pick like three colors or two colors. You can add these Storm the Festival chariot Ren and Seven to it. And then you can put your favorite cards around it and just see what happens. And mm -hmm. it feels like right now, at least you have a competitive deck. I really want to see how that comes out of the pro gauntlet, the pro testing process of what is the best version. But also it's important to know that those decks will be tuned to beat other decks trying to do the same thing. So yeah. I don't know what the best ladder version will be. I will say it reminds me a lot of when I was playing Lolf and Blood on the Snow and Deadly Dispute so much in 2022, where it felt like I could just take those black cards and put anything around them and be good. I feel like that's what we have now with green. And, yeah. you know, that'll be good for making a ton of quote unquote different content. I'll just get roasting comments every day for like changing four cards in the same deck. And that's fine. That's part of my life. But I do think it's a, if you want to be at the heart of the format, I think if you found the best 
Ren and Seven chariot deck, you could say that you you did it. You you solved what's going on because mm-hmm. it's got to be there, right? Yeah, it, it does have to be there, and I, it will be there. And uh, and the only way it won't be there is if Storm the Festival doesn't get there. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if Storm the Festival has to be in the deck. I, I'm willing to no, say that maybe the yeah. final version doesn't need that specific card because it'll want yeah. more interaction and it will want better game against people playing interaction. So, yeah. if everybody's on the Storm the Festival deck, you also have to have Storm the Festival until you're like, okay, test of talents. That's it. And then, yeah. and when that happens, nobody wants Storm the Festival anymore. No, you're totally right. So, and I think that design's done a smart job with giving Is It the tools to to tackle decks like this. So, yeah, overall, I think the format's really sweet. And I don't know, man, it feels so far from being solved right now. I'm pretty excited, actually. I disagree with Andrew Cuneo soundly. I think the format's in a great place. I think it's really fun, uh, unless you are one of the people who tried to get into zombies, perhaps. <laughs> but yeah, overall, thumbs up. I've, you know, every game has felt fresh and interesting. It feels like there's a lot of space to explore in all of the color combinations that I've thought about. So uh, yeah, in conclusion, week two, or I guess maybe week one, just over week one of the format feels really sweet. I have kind of a fun in conclusion question. Okay. Eight days it. into the format, mm-hmm. what is the best card in Innistrad Midnight Hunt? Asika's Chariot. <laughs> not in Innistrad, in, no, from the new set. Uh, okay, best card in standard. You're going to say Asika's Chariot? Hard to argue with. What would you say from the new set? For, from where I'm sitting, it's Ren and Seven. It's probably just because I'm biased. I'm really enjoying playing with that card. It has definitely exceeded my expectations. If it's not Ren and Seven, it's probably something from the Is It decks. So maybe it's Memory Deluge? I was going to go with Deluge. Yeah. I was going to say eight days in, I think that's the best card from the new set. And the main reason is I think that there are answers out there that it's not explored enough to the chariot and the Ren and seven conundrum and deluge will help you find them. So I felt like I'm going to win every time I played this card and I felt for sure I'm going to win every time I flash it back. Like not close. It lets me play the games I want to play. It's awesome. It's an amazing magic card and you're going to see a lot of it. All right. Awesome. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this week. Thanks so much for joining us for another show. You can find us all of the places you can find podcasts. We are also on Spotify. Keep looking. We're there. We're on Covert Go Blue's YouTube channel, so you can watch all of Covert Go Blue's fun facial expressions and dance moves and uh, good times <laughs> to be had. <laughs> oh, man. He's, I feel like CGB tries to get me to spit my drink out like every every episode. So uh, Maybe. You know, could be a thing. Could be a thing. So you can also find both of us streaming on Twitch. He's at Covert Go Blue. I'm at Arena Craft Podcast. Oh, and also Patreon. Patreon. The Patreon, which is the gas that keeps this engine running. Keeps us paying our wonderful editors, Fernando and Bartlebrush, who do such an amazing job on this show. And uh, keeps CGB and I motivated to keep showing up every week. Thank you so much, patrons. We really appreciate you. All right, CGB, I will look forward to meeting you next midnight. Midnight.